He looks determined without being ruthless. Something heroic in his manner. There's a courage about him. Doesn't look like a killer. Comes across so calm. Acts like he has a dream. Full of passion. You don't trust me, huh? Well, you know why. I do. We're not supposed to trust anyone in our profession anyway. Peace, 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 and welcome to The Rematch, which is part of the BasketballNews.com podcast network. On The Rematch, you'll hear in-depth interviews with notable names from all walks of life. Because sometimes the media just doesn't get it right. The Rematch is that second opportunity to clarify, put things in proper context, correct fake news or misreported controversy. The media still exists as the most powerful entity on earth because they control the minds of the masses. I'm Atan Thomas, and the full truth is what we are aiming to catch. Many media stories omit details that would dilute their clickbait roar, and that's why there's a need for the rematch. Today I sat down with semi-retired NBA player Kyle Korver. We talked about his former teams, the Milwaukee Bucks and the Red Hot Utah Jazz. We discussed Shaq's comments to Donovan Mitchell, and Kyle was open and honest about the white privilege he lived in. He stressed the importance of white allies and had a strong message for white America as a whole. This was a really good discussion. Hope you enjoy. Kyle Corber, how you doing, sir? Doing great. Thank you for having me. No, thanks for, I'm doing good, man. Thanks for coming on um, the rematch, basketballnews.com. And I'm going to use a portion of this for my book, like I was telling you. Um, You know, I've been following you for a while. Of course, you know, playing against you, but following you, you know, for a while. And you've you've done a lot, man. I've been really impressed with a lot of the work that you're doing. But first first and foremost, before we even get into it, I got to ask. And this is a question for my son. My son, Malcolm, is 15 years old. Uh, We play 2K a lot. And he loves playing with Milwaukee. And, you know, one of his favorite players was Giannis. He likes KD, too, but favorite player is Giannis. And he would always put you in the corner and just light me up. I'm going to be honest with you. That's So he wants to me to ask, when I told him that I was interviewing you, he said, are you done done or are you going to maybe come back because Milwaukee could definitely use you right now? It's a good question. You know, uh, I'm not sure. And, uh, you know, after the bubble, it was such a quick turnaround. Hmm. And I didn't feel like I had really prepared for another season. I, I believe in honoring the game. Right? I don't want to just take up a spot on a, on a team. And um, I didn't feel like I'd really put in that, that time and that work. And so uh, I, have not, I have not signed any paperwork yet. Okay. Um, so, but I don't know. This also feels good. So it's a, it's a <laughs> conversation that I have with my wife most days. But we'll see. Uh, so, okay. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. Okay. All right. So do you, do you watch? I'm sure you, you're, you're still a fan of it and watching the games. Um, and what, what is your evaluation of the Bucks? And what do you think they could use besides some outside shooting from Cal Corver? <laughs> well, I think that they have um, tried to take some steps forward and really evolving as a team. I think, you know, the last couple seasons, the regular season, they've just kind of steamrolled through it. And 
Um, I think they've seen that, you know, they need to have some more, um, uh, some more ways to attack offensively and defensively in the playoffs. And I think they've been tweaking with that. And while they're tweaking, they're still winning. I think they're second in the East right now. Um, Giannis is really trying to evolve his game. And so um, they obviously added Drew Holiday, which is a, a huge pickup. He's out with COVID right now. But so I, um, I, I believe in them. They have a team that's full of really good character, hardworking guys who love the game. And that's a great place to start. You add the Giannis's, the Chris Middleton's. They have a lot of unique pieces. And so uh, always rooting for the Bucks. Bunch of good you, guys. You mentioned that Drew Holiday had COVID. And, um, you know, would COVID be a concern? Was that a concern of yours, even, you know, going into the bubble or maybe even returning once you came out of the bubble? Um, was that a concern of yours at all? Uh, I, I don't, I think, um, obviously it's a concern for everyone. I, I think, um, you know, you don't want to be part of this, part of the spreading. I think that's, you know, my biggest concern with that. I think, you know, looking at a season, it's, it's, it's a, the, the protocols are really tough on the players and on, and on the players' families. And I think that's a big part of, you know, for me, as I'm looking at all this is I have three young children where we're in school, we're doing, you know, some in school, some online school, there's a lot of questions in that world and just you know it's just it's asking a lot of a lot of people it's asking a lot of everyone um but certainly you know it's a unique season in that um you know players getting tested twice a day family members getting tested two or three times a week um you're trying to live in a bubble on the road you're trying to live in a bubble a mobile bubble on the road um and so it's just it's it's a lot and i i, I to me as i watch the games i can see the wear Mm -hmm. on players and and on teams you know not playing in front of crowds that's part of like the life and the fun of the game is like interacting with the crowd um COVID has changed a lot of things in our country and it's certainly uh you know made the NBA pivotal uh let me ask you this let me pivot to um one of your former teams uh the Utah Jazz uh they've been playing great um and I I wrote an article for basketballnews.com saying that um, Shaq owes Donovan Mitchell an apology. Um, would you agree with that? Or do you think it's a little bit too early for that? So I only caught a little bit of what he said, um, basically that he wasn't a superstar. Is that what he said? Well, basically what Shaq did. So my, my, my issue with his, with his comment was the way that he did it. You know, I think Shaq is an OG in the game, definitely well-respected, Hall of Famer, one of the most dominant big men ever in the history of the game. So people look up to him. The way that the the exchange happened, it, it wasn't only awkward. I thought it was disrespectful. And to you know, to 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 you know, Donovan Mitchell had just had a phenomenal game, thirty six points. They had a win, and it was the post game interview. And he asked him, you know, on the biggest platform, which is you know inside NBA with TNT, he asked him live. You know, he said that he didn't feel that Donovan Mitchell had what it te- what it took to lead his team to the championship. And then he asked for Donovan Mitchell's response. And it was just an awkward exchange. You know what I mean? I was like, why would you ask that Shaq? Like why, you know, I, my, my thing was that he's an OG in this game. He's respected. He could have pulled him to the side and did that, or he could have just, you know, did it differently or challenged him differently. So that's why I said, I, I thought that he, he owed him an apology, but the jazz have been playing great. You know, they're, they're on top of the West, you know, they, They've gone on this unbelievable streak. I mean, they've been playing great. So that's why I said that I thought that that Shaq should, you know, apologize to him, not not necessarily because of the streak, just because of the execution of his challenge. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? 
Well, I just think, um, you know, we're, we're so grateful. I guess I'm now possibly a former player as well, but just the generations that, that, that came before us, um, we're so grateful to them for the foundations that they laid for us to be able to play and earn the money that we do and play the game that we're playing. And so, um, you know, I, I think that this generation, the younger generation, like we're, we're all very aware of that and we all want to do right by them. Um, you know, we're not looking to get into a back and forth with the generations that, that came before us. And I know that, I know that's, that's definitely Donovan's heart. Um, you know, I think there is sometimes we feel some, 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 some pushback um that the game the game's changed the game's soft the game you know so i i think that that's something that you know this the today's players and coaches too are trying to navigate um i, I ultimately i think you want to just root for everybody right um i think you know jack is trying to talk about like the superstars like are you like you are are you one of the top very few players you know how are we defining a superstar i think it's probably where he was trying to go with that but i, I think you're right there is a responsibility when you talk on that big of a stage, um, you know, to to speak well. And I think ultimately, as someone who's looked to, like you have an opportunity to speak positively and to speak life into people. And I think that's ultimately what we want to do in life. Um, and I think that's ultimately how that's going to we're going to that's how we're going to help grow the game and breathe new life into the game. Is like the people who come before you. It's like you know we're not comparing. It's just like how do you stand on my shoulders and how do I launch you forward? That's the posture that 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 we want to have in life, whether it's our children or the next generation of basketball players, um, the next generation who are going to be running this country. Um, you know, like we would say like, you know, we're doing our work the best we can now get on my shoulders and go forward. And I think that's the posture that I wish, um, that more of us would have. Very well said. Uh, I thought you said that very well. Um, you know, so now I want to get into your, your, your article that you wrote last year. Uh, I thought it was, it, it caught my attention and it, it caught me by surprise. I got to tell you, I didn't, I didn't expect it. Um, but you went into real, a lot of depth about white privilege, about um, what it takes to be an ally, the role that white people can play in pushing the movement forward. But let's 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 start. Let's start off with um, you spoke about Tabo Cephalosha, and you know he was your former teammate. He was my teammate in Oklahoma City for a year. Um, I, you know, my, my family loves his family, loves his wife. My kids love his kids, you know, great guy, great family. Um, talk about how his, the incident in, in New York with the NYPD, um, how that affected you. Yeah. Well, I would say initially it didn't, and that's the problem. So the story was that we played, um, we played in Atlanta. Uh, the night before, but one night, and then we flew to New York and we had mm -hmm. a back-to-back the next day against Brooklyn. And you played in the league, you know, like New York, you, you finally get to New York, a lot of guys want to go to dinner, you want to go out a little bit, you want to you see the city. It's obviously one of the you know greatest cities and you want to experience it. But we had a, a you know, a big game the next day and, and a lot of us were, were focused in. And, and, and so when we woke up the next morning and I hear the story that, you know, Tabo, got into alteration, altercation with the police. Uh, we didn't know his leg was broken at the time, but that he got hurt um, and that he spent the night in prison. My, my, my first reaction, mm -hmm. right? And Tabo, like you said, Tabo, I love Tabo. Like he's one of my favorite teammates, one of the most interesting teammates I've ever had. 
conversation is very, very rarely about basketball. We talk mm-hmm. basketball when we need to, but we're talking life, we're talking culture, we're talking, you know, much bigger things. Mm-hmm. One of them, I played with them twice, right? Once in Atlanta, once in, once in Salt Lake. My first thought, even though I know who Tabo is, was like, what was Tabo doing out on the night of back-to-back? And what did he do to get his leg broken, mm-hmm. right? I, I, my, my first reaction was to side with the police. Because if I was in that situation as a white man, and I didn't put this together in that moment, but like mm-hmm. I would have had to have done something significant for the police to do that to me. Mm. And, and so it wasn't until some time later that I really looked back on this story and was like, wow, like look at my privilege. Look at the way that I experienced this country in this world. Mm. What a messed up moment for me. I claim to be Tabo's friend, mm. right? He's one of my, one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. But in that moment, somehow I, I trusted the police more than Tabo. Mm-hmm. Like that's like, it, it's a hard story to pass along. Mm-hmm. I don't really want to admit it, but it's, I think a story that a lot of white people can relate to. And so I think when I was trying to put together, cause you know, I, I kind of thought about this article for a good long time and what does it, how do you talk to one people? I mean, you, you probably wrestled with this much more than me, but like, this is a real thing. Like, how do right. we, how do we bridge this gap? How do we get more people to see the story differently? And ultimately what I've landed on is I have to share my stories and they're not fun to share. They're mostly embarrassing. They feel like, you know, confessions. But when I do that, it seems like there's not this attack or this defense gets put up right away. It's like, oh, like you're willing to admit where you've been complicit and where mm-hmm. you've been part of the problem. Maybe I'll consider it a little bit differently. And so that's what that piece kind of felt like. Um, you know, there's a, a bit more stories around it, but um, it's like, you know, I, I do want to be a bridge because I care deeply about, I have many black friends who I love Mm-hmm. And who I don't just see as equal, but who I see as better than me, mm. right? They're better people, better dads, better athletes, more creative, stronger, braver, more courageous than I am, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm also connected to a whole lot of white people who I know to be generous and who I know to be kind and who I know to be loving and who I, they do love the, their country and their, and their families and their but there's this huge gap between us and how do we step into the middle and really bridge this? And you can't just point fingers at each other. Like you can't just like blame, like I can't just, you know, shoot missiles at my white friends. It doesn't work. And so how do I lead with my own stories, show where I've had blind spots um, and then how I'm doing work to try to be better in the space. Um, And so anyway, that's, that was the heart of that piece. And you have to, you have to come strong with these things, right? You're not trying to water the message down, mm-hmm. right? That's important not to do. Um, but ultimately this is a space that we need more white men to step into and to try to step into it. Well, I believe. You know, it's interesting that, you know, for, for this, for this portion of my book, as I told you, you know, I interviewed a lot of white people in particular, you know, I interviewed um, Sue Bird, interviewed Brianna Stewart, um, and I, I wanted to talk to them specifically about this topic of talking to other white people. Um, interview Stan Van Gundy. And it, it's, it's just, it's, it's different because, you know, there is a segment of mainstream America who are only going to be able to hear it if it comes from another white face. 
That's just the reality of it. It could be LeBron. It could be Steph Curry. It could be Reverend Al Sharpton. It could be attorney Ben Crump. It could be whoever. But they're only going to hear it if it comes from a white face. Do you, do you think that's an accurate assess assessment? I think it's sad, but true. I think part of where I, yeah, I think this is something that we lament and we're sorry about. But I think it, that for me, like, what's sad is that, you know, I could have you or another black man who can speak twice as intelligently, twice as articulately, twice, you know, twice as well as I ever could. But for some reason, I, people will listen to me a little bit more. White people will listen to me a little bit more. They'll get that, 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 that first conversation. Mm -hmm. and, and that's sad, but it's, it, is, it is true. It's, you know, for me, it's like, okay, but there's people who could do this way better than me. And so it makes me not want to step out all the time because I know that I don't know. But there is this, this space where I think it's important, especially as white men, right? Like it's important that we step into this and, and try to humbly walk this journey um, and be and align ourselves where we are listening to our you know, to black voices who are educating us and giving us the right messages to say. Right, where oftentimes where white men get into trouble is we're used to our privilege. We just want to fix problems, right? Mm -hmm. Like this, this law doesn't work. Change the law, or this person's not seeing things the right way. Like let me just explain this to him better, mm -hmm. right? Like this is how. And so, but for us, so for us to not try to do that, we get ourselves in a whole lot of trouble with we trying to take our own understandings, which we don't have, and fix these huge, horrible problems in our country. Mm -hmm. So how are we aligning ourselves? so that we're listening to black voices, but then taking that message to, to, to our white networks. Mm -hmm. Like this is the work for us right now. And um, it's, it's, it's an important piece to, to hold ultimately the changes and the, finding the solutions that, that we want, that we hope for. Uh, you know, one of the things you also talked about in the article was um, incident that happened with Russell Westbrook uh, with a fan in Utah. Um, you can revisit that a little bit and talk about how that affected you as well. Well, so we were playing as uh, Oklahoma City a couple years ago, and this was right before the article came out. This is kind of the last um, thing that happened in my journey, mm -hmm. my, my kind of story before I felt the need to, to, to kind of put that out there. And so we were playing them in a fan. I mean, I think you played in, in Salt Lake. It's a great place to play as far as the energy and all of that but um you know there's been stories like this mm -hmm. un unfortunately playing there where you have a lot of white fans and 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 uh sometimes there it's just there's been some this is not the first time this has happened not at all not at all um and, but someone said something very ugly to russ and russ responded defending himself as he should i didn't hear the comment that was said I didn't know what happened. And so because I didn't hear that, I was just like, this is Russ gets into the fans. This is what happens. I mean, I thought this is what happens, but like this does happen with Russ, right? He's a fiery guy. He's gonna um respond. And he's and so um I just automatically took that side of the story. And it wasn't until a few hours after the game that I learned about what had actually happened. And I was just like, man, how did I side with how did I not side with Russ? I know right. Russ's heart. I know who Russ is. 
like we're not like super close, but I know enough of him to know who who his character is and who, mm-hmm. what he's what he's all about. And so that was another moment where, as a white man, I just assumed that um, that I I put Russ at fault for mm-hmm. that, right? And so, and then from then we, you know, we had lots of discussions as a team and it was super emotional. Um, ironically, Tabo was on my team mm-hmm. having these conversations again as a team. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, I've thought a lot about this since that happened, but have I done anything? Or have I just been complicit this whole time? Even though I've had all these thoughts and I've read these books and my st- I'm still a part of the problem. Right. How do I how do I be a part of solutions? And so that was ultimately a, a powerful moment for me um, to be like, OK, like if I want to be a teammate, a good teammate, a good friend, I got to start stepping into this more. Mm-hmm. And then that's ultimately where that um, that, that piece came out. Do you, one of the things that struck me about the piece was I made a direct correlation to what happens in mainstream America every time a black man is killed by the police, that a lot of times the white America immediately sides with the police before even knowing any of the facts. Or that's when you hear, well, before we jump to a conclusion, let's just wait until the facts come out. And that's usually code for let's wait until the police explanation of what really happened, not what the family says it happened. Do you right. did, did you see that correlation happening? And But that's what also is was so profound about you admitting that even it was even though it was in a basketball sense it was a there was a direct correlation to the bigger picture and what happens in real life for from my perspective what do you think i totally agree um i think you know in my conversations with white folk it's you know unfortunately a lot of white americans don't have any black friends and so but they know some cops mm-hmm. right and they know the cops to be mostly good people who, who protect them and if they call 911 they're going to be there for them and you know uh if they get pulled over there's a chance that if they weren't doing anything really wrong they could get let off right they might just get a warning and so that's their experience with the police they don't most of most white americans don't have they're not in real they might know someone but they're not in a real relationship where they can get another side of the story mm. and to hear the absolute fear of the police in many instances, right? There, there, there isn't another perspective for them. And, you know, we're not great as a society of trying to seek another perspective. We just kind of hold on to what we understand and what we think is right and what we think is fair. And we just kind of roll with that. And I think that's a big part of this is, and this is why, you know, um, diversity is not the answer, right? It's important because you can't get other perspectives unless you're seeking them out, unless you're living next to people who can give you another, another side of the story. All that to be said, you mm-hmm. can live in diversity and still not see the other side of the story. Right. And I think that's where, you know, like my story, I, 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 um, I was born in Paramount, California. Okay. This is a bit of a long story here, but I think it's important. We got, we got time. Take your time. Yeah, go for it. I was, I was born in Paramount, California, where me and some of my family, we were, we were the minorities in the city, right? We went through the Rodney King riots. We went through a whole bunch of things in the city. Saw all that. Moved to a small town 
called Pella, Iowa, which has 10,000 white people in it when I was 12. So I lived for 12 years in LA, then I moved to, so I went, I was in the minority, then I was in the complete majority in okay. Iowa. Then I was at Creighton, some diversity again. Then I go back, I, my rookie year in Philly, I was the only white guy on the team. Okay. I play there for a few years, then I go to the Jazz, right? Okay. I'm in the whitest city in the NBA. Right. In Chicago, Atlanta, to Cleveland. You know, that's when a lot of the stuff the anthem was first coming up. I'm starting mm-hmm. to get a different, I'm seeing these things differently for the first time. Mm-hmm. Just hear the conversations that I'm having, but I still don't fully understand. Go back to Utah and in Milwaukee, which some say is still the most segregated city in America. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I've been in diversity. I've been in the minority and then I've been in the majority. And I've literally gone back and forth every single time that I've moved. And so because of that, I always assumed that while I surely wasn't an expert, I, I probably knew quite a bit. Okay. And I certainly wasn't part of any problem, right? right. Um, but it really wasn't until those years in Atlanta and then going through the Anthem stories with my teammates in Cleveland that I was just like, wow, I, it, just, it just like blew me away. That I, I've been in diversity. I, I have lots of black friends, mm-hmm. right? Not just friends, but like people I really care about and who I've gone to the limits with physically and emotionally in, in, in these, in these basketball seasons and, and playoff rounds, like I'm yeah. emotionally invested and, and I still don't get it. Mm. And that blew my mind. It blew my mind. And that's why I'm so passionate. And I, I'm like trying right now in this space because like, I, I, um, I, I, I can't sit here and like, I, as far as my posture of like, just admitting my blind spots, because if anyone should get it, it should be Kyle. Right. I got you. Right. And I still had all these blind spots and I still, and you learn it's because, you know, like white supremacy is just so intricately laced into all of the, all of the systems, all, all of our culture, like, like why people, we don't understand we have a culture right and that we've set what we think is normal based on our culture we don't understand these things we don't have eyes for these things mm-hmm. i so anyway to come full circle like just because you're in diversity doesn't mean that you're seeing things properly mm-hmm. and so part of my i i can't just be mad at my white friends or networks that don't see it because like you don't know what you don't know but that's why it's important for us to to be messengers and try to be bridges in this because there there is a whole different America that they these white networks will never see will never experience if we're not trying to bring this message. Just because you're in diversity doesn't mean you can see, doesn't mean you know. Like you have to. There's a lot of work that has to happen in your heart. Um, and and uh, yeah, it's a it's that's a long ramble into, but that no. kind of shows my heart. I think. So what was the reaction of different white people to your article that you received? Uh, what was the feedback that you received? Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's going to be both. And I think um, I wasn't really preparing myself for any positive. I didn't think there'd be any positive, but there was, and that was great. I think, um, you know, some people shared that they were, they were, um, you know, seeing some things differently. A lot of people, um, I think we're taken aback and, but mostly just went silent on me. Mm. Like as far as like, um, I didn't feel, I don't really do social media, so I, I don't, I'm sure there was a lot on there. Um, mm-hmm. 
But I think for me, just a lot of people just kind of going silent and not knowing how to engage with me anymore. It was interesting, hmm. really interesting for me. Um, but it, I think what was in the timing of it all, like that came out in 2019 and then we just experienced 2020. Right. And so what was powerful um, was that a lot of people who I was connected to, who weren't really open to it the first time, Mm-hmm. After going through 2020 and seeing a lot of these stories play out, they went back to the article, and then from there we were able to have like really, really good conversations. Actually, um, so yeah, I mean, there's always anytime you step into space, it's there's just people who are gonna say they're gonna give you too much praise and they're gonna give you too much hate, and but you mm-hmm. just try to keep on trying to do the right thing. What you believe is true, what you believe is is uh, is right, and you keep that forward. I think I think one of the things that is so important is creating empathy, and that's a tough thing to do because sometimes people get offended. So in my previous book, uh, We Matter: Athletes and Activism, I interviewed a lot of different athletes, and we're all telling our stories of how these situations of police brutality or police killings or things like that affect us personally. So before COVID, I was traveling a lot, speaking at different universities, and I remember one university in particular. Um, it was UPenn. And I'm there and it was mostly white audience. A lot of white men, you know, know, guys were there. And a person raised their hand and they said, listen, we hear these stories. We've we've read your book. It was required for us to read it. And we're listening to Dwayne Wade and we're listening to Russell Westbrook in the book because I interviewed all of them. And that's just not our reality. Like we don't know that. And, you know, he's like, I can say that that's wrong for it to be anybody's reality. But if I don't necessarily experience that, it's not even on my radar. And that's the part that has been so interesting to me because the, the, the two worlds that exist, and it really doesn't exist for so many in white America. Like you, you, know, you have children, I have children. My son Malcolm uh, is 15, right? So we're thinking about him driving and it terrifies us. Me and my wife talk about it all the time. Like, okay, do we really want him to drive or should we just drive him everywhere? Or should we just, you know, Uber and, you know what I mean, Lyft or something like that? That's a real concern of ours, but it's not a concern for white America. And it's just, I think that what your article did was to open the eyes of many of many people. Well, hopefully that it did do for many white people. Now, black people all applauded you like, oh, that's great. You know what I mean? He he gets it. He understands. So he's trying to get it. He's trying to, you know, he's recognizing his privilege. He's trying to, you know, speak to other white people. But I'm always curious as to how other white people react to it. And that's why I asked you what was your reaction, because that's really important. Like, you know, white people have to learn. And like we said before, they will learn and hear it from other white people, but sometimes they'll get offended and sometimes they'll accept it. And that's that's kind of the difference, but it's really important. Would you agree? I, I could not agree more. And, um, you know, I think that as white, you know, if you're trying to be helpful as a white man, there's a, a kind of like racism one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Like, like we, we can't really get to the deeper levels because we don't know. And we try, if we try to wade too deep in those waters, we just kind of get ourselves in trouble and probably make the problem worse. Mm. But there's a lot of, you know, like talk about privilege, talk about white supremacy, share our stories, make it personal. You know, Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, like all these things that like we we can handle these questions. 
Mm. And, and, uh, and, and honestly, like you guys don't need to talk about this anymore. <laughs> right. Guys. Like I'm sure that you guys are, um, you know, so I, I think that these are ones that we can, that we can, um, I think there's like this initial barrier just to be, have an open heart. So you said empathy, like, how do we, how do we do that? And I think you have to humanize people's stories. And I, so I think, um, you know, I think for me, being able to share some of my stories as a white man, uh, I think maybe that's that's a way to help some. But this is big work, and um, I think the more you step into this, the more you realize how deep and how painful and how hard this story is. And um, but you know, we all have a, a role to play. Tell me about the reaction of some of your teammates and former teammates and guys in the NBA, both black and white. What were their reactions uh, to your article? Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of people commented on it. Um, you know, I think um, it's just weird. Like, I, I, it's not like I, I and I, I don't even want to talk about like I don't want I don't want any attaboys. You know what I mean? This is just like I like um, I think there it created a lot of great conversation. Can I just say that? Mm -hmm, definitely. Um, it 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 created a lot of great conversation and for a good little while now and even like you know even now the more you step into the space like people come to you wanting to have certain conversations like right. they know if you're someone who will be thoughtful and who is not just attacking them um and so like even white guys in the nba like a lot of young guys will just they'll, they'll say a comment during the game or they want to you know connect after the game you know because they're trying to figure out how to step into this space better too and mm -hmm. so um uh you know, the reality is that there's not, we, we, we need more white men stepping into this space, but we don't all know how. Right. And, um, and so I think the more that we can network on that and talk, um, you know, hopefully that works for the better. And so anyway, it, it did create a lot of conversation for me, which only helps deepen my, you know, my walk in this and my journey, um, which I'm grateful for too. You, you stress listening a lot. And in the article, and I heard I, reading it, I heard you say that a few times, how important it is to listen. And it seems to me that you've also been gone from that and wanted to listen to other people. You know, I mean, you know, Craig Hodges, you know, when he texted me, he's like, oh, man, I just had this great conversation. <laughs> and if you, Gordon, decide, man, like, oh, really? if you do like, decide okay, to come back, if you do decide to come back, my son will be very happy to have you back on 2K. What you've done <laughs> so from there as far as All right, listening so before we and trying to go, learn more drop, and listening to people say, like Craig um, Hodges, Hodges. Um, talk and to you're watching uh, the rematch on Fly TV. So, you know, a lot of like Kyle Corver and you're watching the rematch on Fly TV. How do we know that there's anything changing? Perfect. That's great. It's hard to say if things are changing. But I think the only thing you can do is analyze, is look at yourself and say, how am I, how am I growing? Mm. How am I getting better? What am I doing differently that I wasn't doing before 2020 or before whenever you decided to be better in this space? And I think one of the things that I've tried to really sit in is who are the voices that have authority in my life? Who are the voices that I'm seeking out? Because as a white man, it's been very easy for me to only listen to white men. Mm. Right. And, and so I think you have to be intentional about, you know what, like, who, who am I seeking wisdom from? Who am who like, not, I can, it's one thing that I asked about basketball, right? It's another thing to, to really seek in life and faith and the bigger questions. Have, have I given 
black men and women permission to be that voice in my life. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge, what comes in is what's going to come out. Right. And so if we're not putting in different voices and, and voices who really know, um, who have lived experiences, like how are we ultimately going to be helpful? And so I think that's been a big part of my journey in the last, the last several years is just, you know, like it's just really easy for me coming from, you know, where I come from to just only trust white men for the things that I ultimately am seeking wisdom on. Mm-hmm. And I've found that there's like just incredible deep wells of wisdom and life in the black community that I, that not purposefully, but it's how naturally I, I wasn't seeking before. Mm-hmm. And so I just listening and learning has been, is a huge part of the journey and it's an important part of the journey. I think a lot of us want to be about the action right away and we want to fix the problems, but we can't do anything until like, I can't teach my kids things that I don't know. Right. But I have to listen before I can know anything. And so that's a big part of the story. Well, I just want to commend you for wanting to learn and wanting to listen and the message that you, you know, really are sending and have been sending for the last two years, just from that article alone. Um, but then, you know, since then, I've heard you speaking on different things. I've heard you, you've been actively um, continuing the work. So I just wanted to salute you for that because it really is important. Um, so, and I know how effective it, it is, you know, in dealing with the bigger, um, you know, white America, because as I said before, they'll hear it from you. And that's why it's really important. Okay, I'm gonna end this end this with a, on 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 a, on a different note. Um, you know, one more question. You know, so throughout throughout my career, um, people always you know mistook me for Brian Grant. You know, I don't know if it was just the locks. I don't know if what it was. You know, people would come up to me. You know, talk, and we joke about it because they would say the same thing to him. I mean, he's a great guy. You know, great mm-hmm. foundation that he has now. Uh, you know, really respect him. You know, both on and off the court. And I know the answer to this, but I want to ask you, who is the person who people mistake you for the most or tell you that you resemble the most? You know, early in my career, I just, it was just like a daily thing, it's a future thing, right? Yeah. It's like, yo, Corbin, you got punk. Like, like, it's like all game long, you know? Um, luckily, he's he's not on TV quite as much anymore. And um, we've all gotten older. I don't get it quite as much, but. Uh, back when I was playing against you um, uh, in those days, mm-hmm. I was I was getting punked a lot, apparently. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. That's from funny. Iowa, which I, I, I went to middle school and high school in Iowa. So there's a couple little connections there. So That's funny. Now, do you see the resemblance? Because I had to just accept it. I was like, okay, I can see you, me and Mark, Brian yeah. Grant a little bit. Do you, do, yeah. you, do you see I, the resemblance? I get it. I get it. I've seen, you know, the pictures next to each other. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. It's all right. You know? <laughs> Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Hey, well, thanks again. Thanks again for coming on yeah, the rematch. And like I said, keep doing what you're doing. Much respect to you. Thank you for listening to the rematch. You can find more episodes on basketballnews.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review. You can also find my articles on basketballnews.com, along with exclusive content from Kenyon Martin, Vinny Del Negro, James Posey, and more. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Thomas 36 Let me know what you thought of this episode and who you'd like to see as a guest. I would love your feedback.